So, good evening and welcome everyone to the Whitechapel Society meeting for August 2023. And whether you're joining us online via the excellent Rippercast podcast or have chosen to join us this evening at the Crutchfriars pub in the shadow of St. Botolph's Church in Whitechapel, you are all very welcome. And if you want to find out more about the Society, please visit the website whitechapelsociety.com. Now, many of us, particularly those who are involved in researching the history of Whitechapel, enjoy visiting many of the local graveyards in the area and discovering the stories around many of those we find there. Indeed, I recently found out that my grandfather is buried in the same cemetery as Mary Kelly in Leytonstone. So all of us will be very interested in this evening's talk where the origins and history of seven privately owned graveyards will be discussed by tonight's speaker, our very own Trevor Spinage. As the population of London exploded in the first 40 years of the 19th century, the need for burial spaces grew, a need that increased due to the number of cholera outbreaks in the area. This led to the creation of seven new cemeteries being built between 1833 and 1841. So to tell us the stories of what became known collectively as the Magnificent Seven, tonight we are delighted to welcome Trevor Spinach. Trevor was born and lives in Watford, North London. He always had an interest in mysteries such as haunted houses, the Loch Ness Monster, and of course Jack the Ripper. So this led him to become a regular of the Murder One bookshop, which I'm sure has fond memories for most of us. And it was during one of these visits that he found an advertisement for a group called the Cloak and Dagger Club in Ripperana magazine, which became the Whitechapel Society. After that, he became a regular contributor to Ripperana magazine, Ripperologist magazine, as well as our own Whitechapel Society journal. He gave his first talk on Jack the Ripper in Watford in 2001, and we are delighted to welcome him this evening for a talk entitled Paradise by Way of Kensal Green. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Trevor Spinach. All right, well, thank you very much. I'm going to start by explaining where the title of this comes from. It's a poem by G.K. Chesterton called The Rolling English Road. And the final verse is, For there is good news yet to hear, and fine things to be seen, before we go to paradise, by way of Kensal Green. Now, as Tony just said, at the start of the 19th century, the population of London was about one million, but it was increasing all the time. Within 40 years, it had gone up to two million. And this was putting a great strain on the churchyards of, uh, of London and the, the smaller private cemeteries. Now, the government of the day thought, well, we've, something's got to be done about this. But they also decided they weren't going to do it. They would leave it up to private enterprise to actually um, find a solution and make a profit. Now, some people thought, well, other cities must have had the same problem. And they looked no further than Paris because they did have the same problem. They solved it in 1804 by opening one big cemetery on the outskirts of the city. And that was Père Lachaise, a great city of the dead. And so these entrepreneurs thought, yeah, that's what we want. We want a cemetery outside of London. And so they formed a company called the General Cemetery Company. And they bought some land in a little village 
called Kensal Green. It's farmland, so they got it quite nice and cheap. And in 1833, they opened Kensal Green Cemetery. It had a nice, spectacular entrance, entrance gate. And beyond that, wide sweeping avenues to lead to the different parts of the cemetery. But they didn't try to create a city of the dead. What they wanted to do was to create a garden of the dead. Right from the start, all the cemeteries that we we're going to look at tonight all had the idea that people would just come and wander around, wander around the cemeteries. Now they divided the land into two distinct areas. The larger area was made into consecrated ground. So that meant um, members of the Church of England, the Anglicans, that's where they would be buried. But the smaller part was unconsecrated ground. Uh, and that was for people like um, Methodists, Congregationalists, and all that sort of thing. Not only did they separate out the, the burials in different parts of the cemetery, but they also had two chapels. Now this chapel here is the nonconformist chapel. And this much grander one is the Anglican chapel. Both of those chapels had sort of extensive crypts beneath them. They didn't call them crypts, they called them catacombs because that sounded much more romantic. Now, as it turned out, the cemetery was a success. But what they didn't realise was that 10 years on, 1843, it would really take off. And it's all due to this grave here, one of the prime sites in the cemetery. And this is the grave of Augustus Frederick, the Duke of Sussex. So he was the son of George III, and as a royal prince, he could have been buried at, um, at Windsor. But he'd married a commoner, and she didn't qualify. So he thought, I'm not having that. We're going to be buried together when the time comes. So he, he bought the grave there. This kind of begs the question, I think, where the current Duke of Sussex and his wife are going to end up. I don't think I'll be around to see that. <coughs> Five years on from there, his sister, Princess Sophia, died and she also decided to be buried in Kensal Green Cemetery and just see behind her there her brother's grave. But she had, as you can see, much a much more elaborate sarcophagus. Now, following that, of course, anyone who was anyone or thought there was anyone wanted to be buried in Kensal Green Cemetery and as close to the royal family as they could. This is why you have an awful lot of really fancy tombs and over-the-top, really, mausoleums. There's an awful lot of listed structures just in this one area. Now, normally, at this point, when I give this talk, I'd tell a little bit about one or two of the people that are buried there. But since everybody, else, since everybody here is interested in true crime, I thought I'd do a little bit of digging wrong word, a little bit of research <laughs> to, uh, to see if there's any true crime connections with any of the cemeteries. Now, this uh, grave here, this is the largest grave in the whole cemetery, and buried here is the fifth Duke of Portland, who, as we see, died in 1879. Now, the Duke was very secretive, very eccentric, and very, very rich. But when he died, he had no children, no direct descendants, so the whole of the estate was put out to nieces, nephews, and whatever. 
We're going to come back to him a little bit later on. Now this grave is that of Henry Hawkins, or Lord Branson, as he became. He was a High Court judge. Uh, he was known as a hanging judge because of the severity of the sentences that he passed down. In 1876, following a trial at the Old Bailey, he sentenced a Joseph Spinach, distant cousin of mine, to um, seven years penal servitude in Dartmoor. But I know where he's buried now. And one dark night, I'm going to sneak in into the cemetery with a spade and a length of rope, and I'm going to redefine the phrase, hanging judge. Now, one last family grave we're going to look at in Kensal Green. And this, again, this is a family grave. Quite a lot of people of the uh, same family, the Stephen family. And it's this one in particular that we're going to talk about. James... Kenneth Stephen. Now he was for a while tutor to Prince Albert Victor, the son of the Prince of Wales. But he's also been accused of being that the, the two were lovers, uh, that the two um, acting together committed the Whitechapel murders in uh, the book Murder and Madness, which I think you've got on the table over there. He's also been accused of being Jack the Ripper working with Montague Druitt or just being the Jack the Ripper all on his own. But what we do know about him is that in 1886 he had an accident in which he had a serious blow to his head and that caused him to develop brain damage. For a while he was a patient of Sir William Gull but... Um, his behaviour was getting more and more erratic and in 1891 his family had to put him into an asylum. Now according to Wikipedia, so it must be true, in January 1892 he was told that Prince Albert Victor had died and from that point on he stopped eating and died himself 20 days later. Just a shame that nobody actually told him the truth that, of course, the prince was alive and well and living in a remote Scottish castle. As I said, it was um, a family grave. His father is also buried there, James Fitzjames Stephen. And he was the judge who presided over the trial of uh, Florence Maverick. And I think uh, Israel Lipsky, not sure about that one. So, Kensal Green up here. The next cemetery is open south of the river, down here in West Norwood. And it followed very much the same pattern as Kensal Green. Opened in 1837, and it had a reasonably impressive entrance. Got some very much over the top, excuse me, tombs. This is a grade two star listed mausoleum and it had a few famous people as well. This is the grave of Isabella Beaton, famous of course for Mrs. Beaton's cookbook. However, it turns out that she wasn't a cook at all. She was actually uh, what we call a plagiarist. 
she just grabbed anybody else's recipes from all over the place, stuck them in one big book and put her name on it. Now, elsewhere, you, this is someone who you might not have heard of. This is James, grave of James Henry Greathead. And he was a civil engineer. Now, the first tunnel built under the Thames was built by uh, Mark Brunel and his son, Isambard Brunel. Fantastic piece of engineering, financial disaster. Never made any money at all. The second tunnel under the Thames was built by Greathead. And that was a financial success. It was called the Tower Subway, which it turned out was quite handy if you needed to get out of Whitechapel in a hurry. As I say, the, these cemeteries were built for people to wander around and enjoy. And at West Norwood, they actually incorporated the hill into the, into the cemetery. 1842, the Greek community in London were looking for somewhere where they could have their own Greek Orthodox cemetery. And what they did was buy about an acre of ground in West Norwood Cemetery, incorporating part of that hill. So for a while, at least, they not only had an Anglican chapel and a Nonconformist chapel, they also had a Greek temple. Now, it is worth visiting the, this cemetery just to visit the Greek cemetery there because in that one acre of ground, they've got 18 listed tombs and graves. Our next cemetery we're going to look at took the idea of having a hill to extremes. And this is Highgate West. And it was the first of uh, three cemeteries opened by the London Cemetery Company. Highgate West opened in 1839. And it has this uh, rather grim entrance. And if you go in through the entrance, you come into a terraced area. And the two chapels are either side of the entrance gate. And then there's a, a path which winds its way up, gets steeper and steeper, until you find yourself looking at an Egyptian temple. They just cut a great chunk out of the hill and put the facade of an um, Egyptian temple up. And if you go through that gateway there, you've got tombs on either side, and that leads to the next feature of the cemetery, which is called the Lebanon Circle. Uh, when they bought the land, there was a very large cedar of Lebanon tree. So they thought, yeah, we'll include that in our cemetery. So they dug effectively a ditch all the way around it with tombs on either side to make a, a feature of the tree. But unfortunately, in 2019, the tree was in a very bad, very dangerous state. So they had to uh, take it down and they put this new one in, which at the moment looks pathetic, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I was talking to one of the guys there a few months back when I visited, and she said, yeah, well, come, come back in a hundred years and it'll, it'll be fine. Yeah, th these are some of the tombs around there, the Lebanon Circle, and you get to understand why 
so many horror films have been made in Highgate Cemetery. There are catacombs, but they're not under the chapels. They are just built into the hillside. These are very old photographs. Um, I couldn't get into them when I visited uh, a few months back, but they have uh, done a lot, a lot of work in there now. Fast famous people go, well, got Michael Faraday, who's pretty, uh, pretty famous. But apart from that, it's this cemetery is more than sort of the B list, shall we say? But they have some very nice structures in there. For example, this is not the grave of a lion. It's actually the grave of this man here, called um, George Wombwell. And what he did, he collected various wild animals, and he toured the country, exhibiting the, these uh, wild animals, like a travelling zoo. Similarly, this is not the grave of a dog, but confusingly, the dog's name was Lion. He was the particular pet of this man here, Tom Sayers, who was a champion bare knuckle fighter. Very popular. Bare knuckle fighting was actually illegal, but he had many, many fans. And when he died, I reckon about 100,000 lined the, the, the route of his, uh, of his funeral. And the chief mourner up here, right behind the hearse, was lying the dog. Now this tomb, this is the tomb of Thomas Struce, who died in 1864. Or did he? Because in 1897, his daughter-in-law, Anna Maria Struce, she claimed that her father-in-law never actually existed. And she wanted to get his coffin raised up and opened to prove the point. Because she said that Thomas Druce was actually the secret identity of the Duke of Portland. And that the, the coffin would therefore be empty. But apparently, according to her, the Duke got fed up with playing this secret identity and just killed off this Thomas Bruce. Now the reason Anna Maria uh, pressed the case was because if she was right, her son was the heir to the Portland estate and all the money that went with it. Now beyond that point, it, the story gets very complicated. Too complicated for us to go into here, but the coffin was actually opened in 1907 with his chief inspector, Walter Dew, by that time, presiding over it. And they, what they found inside was the body of Thomas Bruce. Anna Maria, by this time, was in a mental asylum, unfortunately. The last person to be buried in uh, Highgate Cemetery, this side of it anyway, was Alexander Litvinenko. And I expect a few of you saw the recent docudrama all about that, part of which was filmed in Highgate Cemetery. He was a, a Russian agent who was granted British citizenship here, but then murdered by the Russians with a radioactive polonium in 
2006. Now, 1840 was a very good year for cemeteries. Three cemeteries opened up. First one we're going to look at is Abney Park, which is out at Stoke Newington. It's on land which was part of the old Abney Park estate, and it was opened by seven Congregationalist ministers. And the gateway there is supposed to be of an Egyptian theme. The actual ground they used was part of the old arboretum of the estate, and they decided to keep the trees. Not really a good idea because trees and graves don't mix too well together, and it's now uh, very overgrown. As far as great architecture goes, this is the only mausoleum in the whole cemetery. And this is the only chapel, looking a bit, a bit sorry for itself when this photograph was taken. Because uh, it was built by um, nonconformists, there's no consecrated ground anywhere in this cemetery. So they only had one chapel. As far as famous people go, yeah. Got William Booth, uh, founder of the Salvation Army. And in fact, quite a few of uh, Salvation Army members are buried here. And we've got this one here. Now, this is not the grave of a lion, but the person buried here is called Frank Bostock. Here he is with one of his lions. He was actually the grandson of um, George Woonwell. He inherited the menagerie down through his mother. That's why he's called Bostock. And in fact, he, he took the, the whole menagerie over to America and toured America with it. Now this grave is quite close to the chapel. And if you can make it out, what you've got there is a policeman's helmet with a tunic underneath. And the inscription reads, Sacred to the memory of William Frederick Tyler who was killed at Tottenham while bravely doing his duty on the 23rd of January, 1909. Just a few feet away, there's another grave, a much simpler one. The inscription here reads, In loving memory of Ralph John Jocelyn, who was fatally wounded on 23rd January, 1909, aged 10 years. So obviously these two are connected. And what connects them uh, came to be known as the Tottenham Outrage. Two Latvian anarchists snatched the wages that were being delivered to um, a factory in Tottenham, which as it turned out was right opposite the police station. They ran off and of course were pursued by the police and members of the general public but they were both armed and they just fired behind them at random anyone they could they could see and that's that's how poor little um Alf Jocelyn just got in the way of one of the bullets. Again, we can't really go into the whole thing here, but the the chase uh, went on for two hours, over six miles, 
and only really ended when the two anarchists turned their guns on themselves and committed suicide. And the uh, the funeral uh, was a big funeral for obviously for the PC. I think little Ralph was also part of the uh, the funeral procession. But they also got in Abney Park Cemetery the grave of the biggest villain ever, Darth Vader. In fact, it's it's just a variation of a theme. The, the, one of the things that you see uh, a lot of in Victorian cemeteries is this draped urn. But Sarah Norwood, whose grave this is, was a beekeeper. So she had a draped beehive. Last time I gave this talk, it was through mainly elderly women. And when I talk, showed a picture of Darth Vader, nothing. <laughs> Never heard of it. Our next cemetery we're going to look at, also after 1840, is Brompton Cemetery. This is in the Earl's Court area. Well, I've included a map of this one because the land that, that it's built on was an old market garden, totally flat. And the architect thought, well, how can, what can we do? We, we haven't got any hills or anything like that. And they came up with the bright idea of building it as if it was a huge open-air cathedral. So up here, you have the, um, what would be the west door of the cathedral, that would be the gateway, a long central aisle, which would lead down to the Anglican chapel where the altar would be. And they then planned at the end of the crossing points here and out here to have a non-conformist chapel and a Roman Catholic chapel. They never actually got round to, uh, to building those. So, this is the, the gateway, or the west door, if you like, looking at it that way. And this is the central aisle, which goes on forever when you're trying to walk down there, until you finally get to the um, Anglican chapel. And on the edges there, you can see these colonnades, and beneath the colonnades, that's uh, where they have their catacombs. And there are also quite a number of listed tombs, mausoleums there. But this is a very neat cemetery. Not overgrown anywhere. And there's a reason for that, which we'll come back to in a bit. Now this is the grave of Dr. John Snow. As Tony said in his introduction, Cholera was a, a big killer in the 19th century. First arrived in this country in 1831. Nobody actually knew how cholera was spreading. They had this theory of what they called miasma, bad air. And they thought that was how it was communicated from one person to another. Dr. Snow had other ideas. He said if, if it was coming through the air, then it would affect the lungs in much the same way as COVID-19 did. But cholera doesn't work that way. It affects the digestive system. And in 1854, he had a chance to prove his point. There was an outbreak of cholera in Soho. And he looked at where all his outbreaks were, and they were all clustered around 
the one pump. So what he did was to take the handle off of the pump. This one here is, uh, is a replica, not the original. And sure enough, the outbreak of cholera stopped. But people still did not believe him. They said, no, no, the water's fine. It's the bad air which has infected the pump, which then gets passed on to the people. Uh, we know now, of course, that he was absolutely correct. But uh, we didn't prove that until after he had died, so there's nothing on his grave to mention the fact that he was the guy who figured out how cholera was spreading. But as well as a, a replica uh, pump, he's now got a blue pack, and he's got a pub named after him. Bit of a shame he was actually teetotal, but never mind. And this is the grave of Emmeline Pankhurst. I'm not sure what she did, but I don't think it was anything particularly important. Seem to upset half the audience there. And this is the grave of John Wisdom, famous, of course, as the author of the most boring, pointless <laughs> book ever written. And there goes the other half of the audience, never mind. Let's move on. Uh, this is Nunhead Cemetery. And again, now we're back south of the river. This is a, the second cemetery opened by the London Cemetery Company. And it's, it's down sort of Peckham Way. And when I visited there a few weeks back, they were having an open day. Always worrying when cemeteries say they're going to have an open day. It's a very pleasant cemetery, very overgrown. But it does have a very nice view. There it is. So if you go there, just make sure you take a powerful pair of binoculars with it and you'll be able to see some pools. The only building which survives on the site is the old Anglican chapel, but that lost its roof to vandalism many years ago. Now, what was open on the open day was the crypt, which they have now restored. And I'm glad to say it was only the door to the crypt that they opened, nothing else. Now, the Friends of Nunhead Cemetery have now produced, I think it's five little booklets called Notable People Buried in Nunhead Cemetery. And I haven't heard of any of them. But there's nobody famous buried there. Maybe there's somebody infamous, this man here. Now, some years back, David Bullock, an author, wrote a book called The Man Who Would Be Jack. Anybody read it? And he tried to prove that this man here, called Thomas Cutbush, was actually Jack the Ripper. But uh, since writing the book, he's still been carrying on the research, and he discovered that uh, Cutbush was not buried in Broadmoor, as he thought, but his body had been released to his family. Now, Cutbush's mother, and I think I'll answer his had a family grave in Nunhead Cemetery. And that may be it. Yes, I've had to take this off of the uh, internet. And what I tried to do was to find out exactly where that is. And I couldn't, couldn't find it. Um, I eventually tracked someone down. I took a copy of the photo with me. I did find one of their senior tour guides around there and said, do you know where this is? And he puzzled it, no, mm, no. And I said, is it a member of your family? I said, oh, no. No, he wasn't a very nice person at all. And then he clicked 
what I was up to. He said, oh, you're not trying to find the grave of Jack the Ripper, are you? I said, no, certainly not. I'm trying to find the grave of Thomas Cutbush. But he, he said, oh, no, we don't take people there now. There's nowhere to see. It's all overgrown. And he walked off. So um, maybe that's where he's buried. Now, in 1841, Tower Hamlet Cemetery, which some of you visited last Christmas, was open. No great gateway. In fact, no, no buildings at all. None of the chapels have survived. Again, it's a very overgrown cemetery. It's been estimated that somewhere between 250 and 350,000 people were buried in, the, in this cemetery. It seems that the East Enders were just as uh, crowded in life, just as crowded in death as they were in life. I always think this is a very sad cemetery, but I do particularly like this memorial here. The inscription here reads, Remembering Dr. Bernardo's children laid here to rest. And, of course, they have the Llewellyn family grave. This is what you would have seen last Christmas if you, if you went. This is uh, Dr. Ralph Rees, Ralph Llewellyn. His inscription on his grave says, Physician and Surgeon, and he was the police surgeon who was called to Buck's Row, um, said that Polly Nichols were dead, and her body was taken off to the mortuary, and then he was called back when they realised the injuries that had been inflicted upon her body, and he made a, a full report of that. Now, Highgate's West Cemetery filled up quite rapidly, and so for their third cemetery, the London Cemetery Company bought the land directly opposite, much flatter land, and that became Highgate East Cemetery, opened in 1860. And practically the first thing you see when you go in is the happy smiley face of Bruce Reynolds, the great train robber. And I've, I've clipped his dates, I'm sorry, they should read 1931 to 2013. But their most famous, so they tell us, person buried there was Karl Marx. Now, as befitting someone who did not think that the individual was important, he was buried in this very simple little grave, which was fine. Until after the Russian re Revolution, and when all the Russian leaders came over to London, they wanted to find Karl Marx's grave, and they couldn't find it. And I know the feeling, because I couldn't find it for a while, and I had a map in my hand. Um, so what they did, they dug poor old Carl up and stuck him in this Carl, Carl Marx Memorial grave. And my guess is that he's been turning it ever since. But of course, as we all know, he's not the most famous person to be buried in Highgate Cemetery. It's this man here. Our own Jeremy Beadle, MBE. And this is his grave. It looked a little bit sad, I thought. A bit un unloved when I visited it. And it's a collection of books because he was a great collector of books, particularly books on, on crime. And can anybody help me here? 
Does anybody know what happened to his book? Is she? Yeah, it's oh, so she's kind of hoping they'd be in some university library somewhere. Oh, right, right, thanks, Ray. I bought, I bought quite a few, I bought some actually myself. Ah. Yeah. Right. She sold them to some bookshop in Train Crossroads. <laughs> now, we've mentioned about uh, cholera. And in 1848, there was another outbreak of cholera which killed off 14,000 people just in London. The government then realised they've got to do something. They've actually got to take some action. So throughout the 1850s, they passed a series of burial. Amongst the things they did was to set up non-profit making local burial boards who would then be responsible for building, maintaining local cemeteries. They also decided that they would nationalise all the existing private cemeteries. So every cemetery we talked about here tonight was going to be nationalised. But then they changed their mind. And finally, they did actually close all the churchyards in London to any future burials. Now this had a bit of an impact on the um, Magnificent Seven cemeteries because they were now going to be competing with uh, non-profit making cemeteries plus the fact that they then also were starting to run out of room. When they sold a grave, they sold it in perpetuity. So they cut less and less land to sell. And most of the cemeteries did actually survive into the, uh, the 60s and the 70s. But they were then abandoned, basically. But they've now got a new lease of life. Uh, West Norwood, Nunhead, Tower Hamlet Cemetery have all been taken over by the local authorities. They are now run as parks and nature reserves. Uh, but the councils had no use for the buildings, so unfortunately knocked all the buildings down. Highgate Cemetery was a little bit different. When that was abandoned in 1975, an organisation called Friends of Highgate Cemetery was formed and they effectively took over uh, the cemeteries, both the old and the new cemeteries. Uh, Abney Park Cemetery, well that was also taken over by the local authority but they had a, a different approach. Here we see was the old derelict old chapel, but instead of knocking it down, they applied for a grant from the National Lottery. So now, it looks like this. It's got a nice new roof on it. It doesn't have a floor yet, but they've now got another lottery grant and they're going to put a flooring. I think the idea was eventually they'll be able to rent it out as a venue. Um, so after all, it doesn't really make too much difference. The chapels are in the middle of the cemetery, so it doesn't matter how much noise they make, they're not going to wake the neighbours up, you would hope.
Now, Brompton Cemetery, whilst the only cemetery that the government actually nationalised, they then changed their minds and didn't um, nationalise anymore. That then gave the government the problem. They now own the cemetery. What are they going to do with it? Until one bright spark said, I know what we'll do. We'll make it a rural park. And then the organisation that looks after Regent's Park, Hyde Park, Richmond Park, will also look after the cemetery. And that's what they've been doing for the last 150 years or so. That's why Brompton Cemetery does look so nice and neat and tidy all the time. So that brings us right back to where we started, Kensal Green Cemetery. And somewhat surprisingly, 190 years since it opened, it is still owned and run by the General Cemetery Company. In the 1930s, they opened up a crematorium, but they still have burial space available and they've still got plenty of room in their catacombs. So, when your time comes, whether you decide you want to go up in smoke, be entombed forever in the catacombs, or buried six feet under, you can still go to paradise by way of Kensal Green. And that's it. Great, thanks very much. Listen, um, as usual, we'll take a, a ten-minute break, okay? So back about ten past eight, and then we'll have some questions, okay? This is the time to take any questions that you might have, and I might just point out very, very briefly for our um, American listeners that Jeremy Beadle is a TV celebrity, or was a TV celebrity here. Um, he used to run a, a show called Beadle's About, very much based on... Um, County Camera, and he was a member of the White Chapel Society, and indeed an MC before I was. So, are there any questions that anybody has? And if I can ask you again, just to wait until I come to you with a, with a microphone, um, and I'll um, you can ask any questions. Yes, go ahead, Mark. Just, just out of interest, is the City of London Cemetery at Manor Park not part of the Big Seven? Uh, even, no. even though it was. Uh, it was you know, around the same time, the 1850s, I think, wasn't it, when it was opened? Uh, I can't. I don't know what the date, but no, it's not. Oh, okay. I'm, I don't, I'm not sure why. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Because it was obviously it was owned. Uh, it was started and still owned by the city of London, by the city of London. Yeah. They still yeah. own it. Yeah. yeah. Great. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. Great. Hi, Trevor. You did mention uh, Emily Pankhurst's. Great, but mm. I can't remember which cemetery you said it was. Brompton. Brompton. Yep, great. Thank you. If you had to be buried, which one would you choose to be buried in, and what would your headstone be? An epitaph. Which one? Mm. It'd have to be Kensal Green, I think. Well, it's nearer to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I guess it would be some, uh, paradise by way of Kensal Green. Mm. 
your epitaph. All right. <laughs> What did he get seven years for, your relative? He got caught. No, he was... Uh, basically, he... When his parents died, he took over the tenancy of, of their cottage, which, as far as I can make out, was just a two-room, single-storey thatched cottage. But he was running out of money. Bit of a lazy so as far as I can make out. Um, so we started selling things off, selling, selling clothes off, selling furniture. And that was beginning to run out and he came up with a bright idea. He would start a fire on the roof, on the thatch roof of his cottage, as if uh, a stray spark had landed on it. He was going to do this obviously in the middle of the night. And then he could light another fire underneath and they make a false claim on this insurance policy, right? Unfortunately, uh, his aunt, who lived next door, when he set lights to the roof, she smelt it, roused all the neighbours, and they come and put the fire out for him. So, he waited for a bit, waited about half an hour, and everybody had gone back to bed again, and he started another fire, inside but not under where the other fire was in a different part of the cottage which then that set fire to the thatch and the neighbours all come round put that fire out right? so the next day he calls in the insurance agent and says oh I had this uh, terrible fire and the insurance agent come, comes around has a look and says uh, bit suspicious, they've got two, two holes in the roof here. And he said, well, what did you lose? Old, oh, one little suit of clothes and uh, a feather mattress that I had. And the guy said, well, I can't see any burnt feathers. No, no, all, all burnt, all burnt. Um, so it was obvious what's going on and he gets arrested, taken out before the magistrate. Um, <laughs> the magistrate is very critical of the, his neighbours saying they weren't very helpful at all of course not because they knew damn well what, what he'd been, been up to anyway he gets sent off then to Reading Jail to await uh, the next circuit for the judges but they have a, an arrangement there uh, whereby if there's a bit of a backlog they could move some of the cases up to the old Bailey and that's what happened in his case and that's how he ended up <coughs> with that with the judge that he did and how he ended up getting uh, getting sent off to Dartmoor I think they did let him out after six years so, uh, <laughs> so that wasn't too bad and um, some of the uh, the graves that you showed, some of the mausoleums, were just incredibly ornate. They are. I yeah. mean, the cost of putting or creating those must have been immense. Mm. And was it was it um, a th something that had happened back in that era where people just went overboard on these mausoleums? Is that something that was done? Yeah. Basically, yeah. I think <laughs> yeah, people who didn't quite make it 
if you like, in life. So I thought people are kind of remember me <laughs> when I'm make gone. It, make yeah. it in death. Um, you mentioned um, Litvinenko there, where and he was buried. Did they have to do anything with that burial to make it safe? Do what? you know? Litvinenko, the Russian uh, spy? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. lead-lined. Lead-lined. Conf- confused by that because uh, I showed the memorial, but I don't think that's where he's actually buried. I think it's somewhere else in the cemetery. I, I, I found a picture on, on the internet of it, and a friend of mine who did the, the guided tour around the cemetery was told, they showed the grave and said, you cannot take a photograph of this grave. Wow. So I don't know, it's still a bit of a mystery there. I'll have to got to work on that one. That's very strange. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that sound effect. Okay, I mean, unless there's any other questions, then I think I'm happy to wrap it up here and please show your appreciation to Trevor Spinach. Thank you. Thank you.